FIA World Rally Championship and the Swedish International Rally. This is the only true snow rally of the year, although global warming in the last few years means that for 2001, the rally moves further north in search of the white stuff. Amazingly, this is the fastest rally of the year. Amazing because it's run on forest tracks, slick with ice, lined with rock-hard snowbanks. Regularly, the cars hit 170 kilometers an hour. This is a pure driver's rally, and only the bravest succeed. Back again is local hero Stig Longfist, who's won the rally seven times. In fact, in half a century, no non-Scandinavian has ever won the Swedish rally. Welcome back to Rally DNA, in association with our kind sponsor, Slip & Grip Automotive. Slip & Grip Automotive are a UK-based motorsport events organiser and members club. They host various event types throughout the year at a number of UK, UK locations, including track days, sprints, tarmac rally testing, and social events. They're also the sole organizers of the Bont Rally Stage in Mid Wales, a great tarmac stage providing excellent prep for crews before tarmac rallies in the UK or Ireland. To find out more, visit www.slipandgripautomotive.co.uk, and the link is in the description of this episode, so please make sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. This week, it's another Rally we Rewind, this one lining up neatly once again with this year's Rally Sweden. So we've chosen two runnings of the event that we feel are worthy of discussion. Killian, how are you feeling? Very good. Um, looking forward to talk Sweden, one of my favourite events. Um, it's always stunning to watch, isn't it, really? Um, so there was a few to choose from from this one, I think. Um, and we both landed pretty close together. Uh, really enjoyed doing the, the Monty one. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of keeping this format going as well and uh, hopefully make it a bit better and slicker and see what we can do with it. Absolutely. Um, and, and without wanting to give your one away, I think it's interesting we've both chosen, landed on on Swedish events that are very, very close to one another um, and probably for, for very similar reasons, as we'll find out. Yeah, I think you can draw you can draw a pretty decent line between them in some ways, can't you? But we'll we'll probably discuss that at the end, I guess. Absolutely. Um, so, without further ado, I'll start first chronologically. Uh, the rules, as as we stated before, uh, are that the uh, our respective selections had to be from within our lifespans. Um, so, for for me, that's 1988, and I've chosen to uh, be way away from that uh, from 2001. Um, the reason being, I thought this was Rally Sweden at, the, at its turn of the century best, um, replete with lots of snow, three loops of fast, classic challenging stages, um, well-known stages, uh, and of course, groaning under the figurative weight of OEM participation. Um, as everyone listening to this knows, this really is the, the high watermark for car manufacturers completely wholeheartedly embracing the world rally car formula um and sweden was a belter that year also the, a plethora of, of immense talent and linked to the the oem participation the fact that most of these guys had works births which these days would not be the case and hasn't been the case for the best the thick end of 20 years now it's also an era when the Swedish still uh, mandated the, those ultra skinny um, gravel digging tires, uh, which we we love. Uh, uh, anyone of of our generation associates with the Swedish, um, deeply cool and much missed. <laughs> so, um, 
2001, the uh, the Swedish moved further north for the first time. Something we're far more used to these days uh, because we've we've had to the events had to chase the snow around. But this was one of the first times it happened. Uh, though not the first time global warming had made its presence felt, because it was of course cancelled way back in 1990 for a complete lack of snow. Um, it was still a fairly long old beast, 380 kilometres of competitive length. Uh, the opening leg saw crews tackle six stages around the Torsby area. And I would like to apologise in advance now uh, to any Swedish listeners, because there's going to be some mullering of your fantastic language. Bjalvod, Longorden, Bogen, Granbergat, Torntop and Sagpalit. Uh, total competitive mileage of 148 kilometres, that opening leg. Then the rally moved east to Grangersberg. Uh, the following day to take in another six stages, Cullen, Nyhammer, Fredericksburg, Silksburg, Nyhammer 2 and Lugnitz, the uh, the little uh, super special. Total competitive mileage for the second leg, 134Ks. And finally, the, the classic last leg uh, centred around Hagfors. Five stages, Sagan, Ramen, like the noodles, uh, each run twice. And finally, Hagforce itself uh, took competitive mileage for the final leg, 97Ks. Is that the Hagforce sprint stage then at the end, or is it a full-length stage? Full stage, full mm. proper stage. Um, it's, it's definitely a name that that I, I associate and always have done with the Swedish. Um, yeah, I think it snuck its way into Colin Cray Rally 2 as well, which occasionally used a real stage, you know, if I remember rightly. But I'd need to... I'd need to double-check that, which is an excuse to fire up Colin McCrae Rally 2. Mm, if everyone was needed. Exactly. Um, teams and drivers. Peugeot, uh, very much uh, a waxing force uh, at this time, thanks to the 206 WRC and Marcus Gronholm. Uh, this era saw the 206 at its, at its absolute best, uh, very much setting the standards and the template for what... Uh, a peak two-litre the World Rally car could and should be. Very neatly designed, limited front over front and rear overhangs, small, well packaged, the whole shebang. Um, Marcus, of course, was uh, a, a relatively newly minted World Rally champion after 2000. Um, and he was seeking to add his second uh, Swedish uh, success on the bounce here. Um, of course, all that was tempered by the knowledge, would have been tempered at the time, by the knowledge that uh, the 206's reliability was less than perfect. Gronholm was forced out of the Monty a few weeks beforehand with uh, a water pump failure. And without wanting spoilers, it would, you know, make its presence felt again. <laughs> um Peugeot uh, bolstered its uh, its assault by adding Harry Robin Pera, a fresh-faced young man with uh, a second name that no one outside of Finland really recognised at that time. Uh, and probably because of that, they neglected to sign him up to score manufacturer points, uh, an oversight that would come to, uh, to be fairly egregious in the fullness of time. And uh, another car for Didier Oriel, uh, the 94 champion, Still uh, an earning WRC driver at the time, though for this event, he was visibly struggling with the flu. Um, and I know Killian himself has, has looked at the, the footage and, and there's no way that he would be allowed to compete in this here and in the here and now, looking and feeling as he clearly did. No, he looks and sounds like absolute shit. Um, 
there's no way he should be behind the wheel of that car. It's no, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's not a head cold. Like he is visibly suffering and tired and it's it's rather irresponsible. And, and in the in the in the highlight show, did you say that he's been they've used the words dragged from his sick bed as well? So when, how, like how, and he does look like that. I can believe that, like, you know, there was a Peugeot sport team of guys sent there with a load of Lucas aid to bang on his hotel room door and say, come on, get into that car. You know, here's some pastries. Um, I'm gonna say, wait, 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 wait. Lucasade—that's not a French stereotype. Yeah. We all know it's a, a Galois, uh, a, a pan au chocolat, and, and an orangina. Know, an orangina. There we are. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he even says uh, in in the the highlights package that on the opening day he was a few seconds behind his brain, which is more than understandable, but not what you want when you're trying to, to pilot a WRC car, let alone on a play, an event as specialised as Sweden. But well, if you're um, if you're Denis Giraudet at that point, uh, sitting alongside him, you can't be too happy with that. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, then on to Mitsubishi. Uh, still, for the start of this season, or for most of the season, in fact, uh, with the Group A Lancer Evo, Hmm. Wasn't it? Uh, was it San Remo? They debuted the Step One WRC, I think. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, the result of uh, a, a deal with the FIA uh, inked way back in well, ninety-seven, I believe. Um, that was the the immovable uh, line in the sand, the two thousand and one season for having a wild rally car up and running. Um, and as everyone listening to this surely knows, it's it's kind of this deal with the devil it turned out being you know it turned out turned out as because Mitsubishi put all its eggs in in the 2001 basket hoping that that the old car could win with Mackinac and there was you know an infinite thought that that could have been the case because Mackinac Mitsubishi has fairly good form um but the the lack of development or the impact that had on the development of its first step one world rally car uh, was was obvious um but then you wouldn't have known that at this point, or at least not if you were the average punter, because Tommy had had won on the the, the Monte a few weeks previously, um, as he customarily did at that time. You know, it's easy to forget how how successful Tommy was uh, on the Monte, um, and he'd be right in the mix of this as well. However, as we'll see soon, see, I think there's fairly ample evidence that even someone as gifted and prodigiously talented as Tommy was going to have, was having to drive to the ragged edge everywhere to make up the difference. And perhaps mm. that was made more possible on the Swedish because he was, it's again, such a specialist event, an event that he was so talented at so well suited to. Um, and then Mitsubishi's charge was bolstered by both Freddie Lloyd's, uh, Still, still, I mean, I, I dare say that his reputation was was beginning to be tarnished by this point, um, I, just because his his lack of ability to gel with the Lancer. Um, and Thomas Radstrom, uh, <laughs> everyone's favourite perennially overlooked rallying Swede, perhaps. Uh, he gets bonus points for friend of the pod, John Desbrook, correctly identifying his resemblance to Harry Potter, uh, albeit perhaps a little meanly. Uh Mitsubishi hadn't overlooked uh, nominating Thomas Radstrom for manufacturer's points, so bully for them. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, the, the, that decision with Robin Perez seems like an odd move because, I mean, he was specifically brought in for this event, and yet, what? How yeah. did that? What's the point in bringing him in? Because he's, you know, he's he's not in the championship fight, um, as such. And it's not like Didier was with all the best will in the world, known for being, uh, you know, a Swedish ace. Not certainly by no means a tarmac limited expert, but he's hardly the guy that you'd associate with. With, with you know low traction stuff throughout is he um, no uh, and then Ford of course I would argue this is this is peak M Sport Ford um, uh, McRae science I think you'd, you'd struggle to argue that it wasn't the most complete uh, driver lineup uh, a team fielded that year but it would have proved to be a competitive yet ultimately frustrating rally for both uh, but especially McRae and perhaps indicative for how the season would progress, uh, given how it ended and everything else. Mm. Uh, the uh, the other focus, uh, work's focus, was for Francois Delacour. Um, surprising choice, perhaps, given his reputation for delivering his best drives on sealed surface events. But he would ultimately pay repay Ford's faith with a fine drive uh, to, to points at the end. So what do I know, hey? Uh, Subaru's lineup sphere headed by, of course, Richard Burns, destined to claim this most hotly contested of world titles. It also set for a decide, decidedly mixed trip to Sweden, complete with both ballistic pace and a fair few trips into the snowbanks. But in that, he was far from alone, as we will soon, soon see. Um, Subaru also uh, fielded impressors for Petter Solberg and Marco Martin. This is Martin's oft-overlooked uh, 01 spell with Pro Drive uh, because he seemed to get a hell of a lion's share of bad luck. I mean, it, mm. it's, it didn't even make the start of uh, of the Monty, if I remember rightly, with the because of mechanical issues. Um, yeah, everyone forgets, or well, I would say everyone forgets that would be doing a, an injustice to everybody. But uh, you know, you could easily overlook that he was at Subaru or Pro Drive at all. Uh, I said, mm. easy done. For me, it's hard not to see his him start his his or at least the his work career starting in a blue focus WRC. That's blue that's focus, the one. Yeah. Um, both, of course, at this time were viewed as promising hopes for the future rather than baked in rally winners in their own rights, uh, which is horrific evidence of how long ago this now was. Uh, you know, I struggled to get my head around it because I I was lucky enough to. To go to this to some to, to the network queue at the end of this season, it's it's like right in the teeth of when I I was going to, to WRC events every year with my dad, um, and and yeah, I can't believe it's twenty one years. It is obviously, but you know, <laughs> well, I suppose it's it's long enough ago that you can that Peter Salberg's son is doing Sweden the day this episode comes out, so. Yeah, and, and someone uh, else's son. I was gonna but, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, and we'll get to the we might the, save that one, the, the maths. Um, but it's, it's interesting that Petter had, had given his uh, reputation with Banbury a bit of a drubbing, um, already by this point because he'd rolled out of contention for a, a possible podium in the Monty. Um, and he says in the footage, jokingly but clearly not jokingly, that he was on a very, very tight, short leash for this event. Um, and yeah. Probably, probably for the best. Uh, Hyundai, last outing for the original Phase 1 Accent WRC. Um, a chance to give the car a fitting sign-off for Kenneth Erickson and Alistair McRae, uh, and on a surface that should, in theory at least, have helped nullify the Accent's power and developmental disadvantages. And 
or at least 50% of the team, so it proved. And of course, the real reason we're here, the Octavia WRC Evo 2s uh, for, for Schwartz and Thierry. Um, even the, the, the diehard Octavia apologist in me would be would admit that this was not an event or a surface or or, or, or stage types that particularly suited the Octavia. Um, it, it's mm. so long and, and those stages are so tight. I mean, you see it go, get, you know, 90 degrees sideways. There is very little gap between any snowbanks and the overhangs, the extended overhangs between that car. It's like the anti-206 WRC on this rally, really. It's like the complete antithesis of 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 that, you know, idea and concept of a world rally car. And then you have this thing, yeah, waiting for it to end up in like that Austin Powers tunnel situation <laughs> um, between God, banks. Yeah. Looks good, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, Schwartz had a few competitive times on this. In it, to be fair, he did, did, and he worked his way up. He did. Um, uh, and as we've discussed previously, I'd like to 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 have asked him whether he felt any parallels between driving this car then and driving the two hundred Audi two hundred Quattro he drove in Sweden. That probably would have been twelve years before this. You know, I mean, a fair um, comparison. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so leg one. I'm not going to uh, butcher the Swedish language by uh, by trying to pronounce these these uh, stages because these are definitely the hardest ones of all. No, leg two wasn't too bad. This is no, uh, no, no. I'm, 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 yeah, I that. yeah. But the first one, Jarlveld. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry. Um, Mackinnon first up the blocks uh, and thus, of course, charged with playing road sweeper uh, for the opening leg. Uh, uh, he would finish the day an impressive fifth overall, but here on the opening test, he'd only manage 14th fastest um, legacy of, of the amount of snow on the roads and also perhaps fumbling his tyre choice because um, Gronholm uh, was a second a kilometre faster than Mackinnon uh, because he selected uh, Michelin's longest stud option for the stage. Uh, he was fastest through the, st- uh, the first stage by uh, 3.9 seconds. Um and you know it's easy to 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 put counterfactuals and narratives about this kind of thing, but I think if fate hadn't intervened, Gronholm probably would have been more sitting pretty after this. To be honest, uh, Burns and McRae equally quick up the blocks to end the stage second and third. Both struggled for grip. McRae found the new Pirelli snow tyres fitted the focus more to his liking than Burns did with the uh, with his Impreza. Thomas Radstrom set about repaying Mitsubishi's favour uh, by being fourth fastest on SS1, uh, and this is despite never having driven the Evo in anger before, which, I mean, if nothing else, must have been pretty galling for poor old Freddie Loix. Uh, mm. you know, after however many, what, two seasons by this point of trying to make that car click and then having some... Well, I was going to make a Harry Potter jibe, but I won't. Some, there's someone coming in and, and just very much sort of showing him how it should be done. Um, Robin Perra, sixth fastest overall on SS1, despite brake fade issues, um, which, I mean, quite a, quite a stealthy start to the, to the rally for the man who would ultimately do so well in it. Uh, but understandable, given that, you know, it's not it's not a sport or a, or a stage or indeed a rally that you, you want to be having less than fulsome confidence in your braking power. Um, so on to SS2 and 3, uh, Lon Holden and Bogan 
lots of drama in these stages. Um, they were tackled on the same tyres as SS1, uh, which meant Mackinnon had to come overcome his poor tyre choice yet again. Uh, he was sixth fastest overall through here, still, of course, sweeping the snow. Gronholm's rally started to come unstuck here. Um, it began to overheat in SS2, uh, and he topped it up uh, at the end of the stage, limped it through, but then the inevitable happened halfway through SS3. Uh, Bogan, uh, the water pump gave way um, just as it had done um, in the Monty, and the engine was well and truly goosed because Gronholm, in his own words, said he kept on driving it in anger. Uh, you know, I mean... In, in the interview, as we all know, Finns, most Finns aren't the most expressive of people. And Gronholm was perhaps more expressive than some Finns. But but here he did look absolutely crushed. Um, always a hard thing to judge when it comes to rallying Finns, I admit. But, uh, you know, I really felt for him here. Burns, very quick out the blocks here, uh, but came unstuck uh, halfway through Lornholden, uh, special stage two. Uh, he was spat wide on a fast left-hander and into the banks, lost 13 minutes, uh, and of course, any hope of a, a solid overall finish. And it's, it's a, I, mean, I don't know whether it's because knowing how we do or knowing knowing how it ended in a few years later, I always find any disappointment for, for Burns harder to bear. It hits to home. Um, and yeah. in this, he's clearly just gutted. He's, he only gets... Four spectators to help push him, and he's well wedged as well. Um, he starts shouting at people to stop looking at me and push the car. Yeah, it's... it really comes across in the footage. You can see him just the agony in his face and voice, and there's only a few of them there. And yeah, and being the absolute class act he was, he he later on at service thanked those same four people for doing all they could. You know, he didn't leave it as as annoyance. Um, so we lost 13 minutes, but uh, powered by rage and 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 fury at the next stage, he won outright. He was quickest through SS3 Bogan uh, by a fairly comfy margin. McRae, uh, obviously the big foil, this is the in the teeth of that Battle of Britain nonsense that we had for a while. Uh, uh, yeah, I know, but <laughs> it was hard to resist at the time. <laughs> um uh, he backed the lead on special stage three through Bogan, uh, but also went off into the snow late in the stage, lost five and a half minutes. Uh, the only reason that uh, that he was able to to emerge somewhat less unscathed was because he happened to to stop it in front of a mass bank of spectators. Um, there's some fantastic footage of of various ruddy cheeked squeeds, like with their faces squeezed against various glass windows. In the focus WRC put it put pushing it out for this one, which is quite good. Um, but uh, but yes, got it out, kept on going. Uh McRae would then go on to win the next seven stages in a row, um, including those which made up the remainder of the opening leg, which is, I mean, as a McRae fan then and now, but especially then, this kind of thing was really hard to bear. This was very much why it was hard work being a McRae fan. This mm-hmm. Because he innate talent, he, ability, and yet always, not always, but seemingly more often than not, compromised by, well, an error. But yeah, because he the uh, he was leading Monty as well before. Did he crash out of Monty the event uh, before, or was there a mechanical issue? Mechanical issues. Uh, uh, it's a gearbox issue on the Sunday. 
Um, you certainly mm. see him uh, getting out the car and, and giving it loudly, giving it a, some GBH, uh, which you also see later on in this rally as well. <laughs> Lots of McRage going on here. Oh. Um, <laughs> thank you, Motorsport News Headline, circa 2002. Um, Radstrom started rewarding Mitsubishi's faith in him yet again. Uh, he drove superbly on the opening stages to lead the rally come SS3, then managed to defend and build up upon, build upon this in SS4 Granberger. This is the first time uh, a driver held a lead uh, for more than one stage. Uh, he'd finished that stage with 3.5 second advantage over Sainz, who in himself did his classic thing of driving himself into the rally slowly but steadily, became faster and faster as the leg went on. Um, and of course, aided by the misfortune of others in terms of his ascent up the running order, Burns, McRae and Gronholm obviously re removed themselves from his from the equation. Uh, he finally overcame Randstrom for the lead on SS5. Um, and obviously by this point had made the, his own calculations that it was better, or he'd rather defend a lead uh, and sweep the snow on the next morning rather than back off and, and make hay. Which, as, as as fans, I'm sure we can all appreciate now and then, because you know, I, anyone watching WRC back then will have will empathise with how annoying it was watching crews deliberately shed time at the end in the in the, the closing stages of a rally or, or closing stages of a loop, rather. Right, Robin Perra, obviously now the uh, the lead 206. Uh, he worked his way up the leaderboard on this leg and would end in second overall, 13 seconds behind Saints, Saints having overhauled Radstrom on SS6. Um, in that, he was hampered, but, uh, sorry, he was aided by Radstrom running further down the order, weirdly because dust started closing in um, and, and made uh, hitting apexes that much harder. He was the 10th fastest through SS6, Sargfollet. Uh, which was a, a real drop in form for him, largely because of this running further down the order meant that he was running later um, and and yeah had less light to work with. Towards the end of the leg, impressive drives for Oriol and Ericsson, uh, the former end of the day in fourth overall, the latter in sixth in the accent. Not bad given they were battling flu and the Hyundai accent WRC respectively. <laughs> I can't help my my. I, I feel that I have to to pick a side with Octavia accent, and 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 I can't help which way that I feel. <laughs> uh, poor Odd Lloyd's fairly dismal off the pace throughout the leg, uh, and he lost three minutes in the snow by doing the usual Swedish thing of of getting sucked into a uh, a snowy bank on SS4, which was also the stage that Alice McRae. Uh, went and had his own off into the snow, um, and then he found his his accents, uh, his 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 pace compromised because he had a damaged exhaust manifold, um, and the car sounded like an absolute bag of shite. Um, Marco Martin equally impressive, but equally SS four off into the snow that lost him fourth place, and he plummeted right down to the twentieth uh, or something, maybe twenty fifth. Um, so, so not the, the most uh, stellar of opening mornings for, for Marco. Um, Mackinen, unimpeachably impressive, uh, up to fifth, but as I've said, come the end of the day, struggled with a studded tyre choice and would continue for the rest of the leg, but you wouldn't know it. It's one of these classic Mackinen performances of slowly driving himself in. He doesn't seem like he's anywhere for a, long, a lot of it, and then before you know it, he's up there fighting for the lead. 
Stages five and six uh, were run in uh, still sub-zero temperatures. That's very tricky for those running early in the order. Uh, McRae and Burns set the fastest through both these stages. Fairly mesmerizing stuff. Um, and for me, at least, it, it makes, well, probably everyone, makes everyone quite quite nostalgic for a time when these two were regular uh, leaders, points finishers and challengers. Um, bit of a hackneyed point, but it's it, it's it's staggering that we went from well, I say we. It's staggering that as a Brit, we went from uh, from having two guys challenging at, at the top of the table, top of the the top of the championship uh, in such an elite sport. One minute to within months having none, uh, and and so obviously two thousand one is something of a swan song for this. There's a few more, but this is peak um, Burns versus McRae, probably aided by the fact there wasn't much on the table, so they could just go out at hammer and tongs. Um, and again, as we all say, Thierry and Schwartz, end of the day, 11th and 12th, uh, good old Octavius, um, taking more out of Sweden than Sweden took out of them. <laughs> so at the end of uh, the first leg, we had Carlos Sainz and Luis Moya uh, leading uh, Robin Pera uh, by uh, a scant 13.2 seconds, a 13.2 seconds uh, with Radstrom and Tina Torna. Uh, 6.1 seconds further down, uh, and then Oriol after that, and Makinen. 3.3 seconds behind Oriol in fifth. Day two, leg two. Uh, Cullen, Nyhammer, Fredericksburg, Silksburg, Nyhammer two, and Lugnitz. Um, and Sainz must have woken up on Saturday morning feeling pretty good about his decision to uh, to go hell for leather the previous afternoon. Uh, very little extra snow, just a, an extra layer of ice. Um and as such, he was able to maintain the lead for stages seven and eight, driving like an absolute demon. Um, at the end of stage SS8, uh, the first run through Nyhammer, his uh, his advantage over Rod Robin Pera was just 0.3 seconds. Bradstrom was mightily quick and remained in touch with Robin Pera over the opening stages, despite a trip into the banks on SS7, Cullen, um, proving that even locals and, and snowy experts came unstuck in this particular Swedish. Pretty much everyone spent time in the snowbanks at some point over the late these three days. Uh, Orioles flu seemed to, to 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 recover and rebound overnight, and as such, he found himself really struggling once again with it uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, meaning that he swapped places with Mackinnon, who surged up to fourth overall by the end of Cullen, uh, at, the, at the end of the pass through Cullen. Uh, the following stage, he was second fastest overall, quick enough to move within striking distance of Thomas Radstrom, of course, with his teammate. And despite it being a very competitive showing, if things had remained as they were here for the end until Sunday, one expects that um, there would have been some team orders skullduggery come into play, even this early mm. in the season, because with all the best one in the world, Radstrom wasn't being 2001 world champion at all, was he? No. Um, Delacour, uh, in the third focus, uh, managed to rise all the way to fifth overall in the opening morning of the second leg, uh, thanks to an improved stage times, uh, partially a result of being permitted a wider selection of snow-studded Pirellis. Um, it's apparently due to McRae's misfortune, which I find I found hard to, to comprehend, but I suppose a finite number of, uh, of, of, of studded or particularly strong or large studded Pirellis. You still oh. think that McRae would be given... First choice either way, though, even if he was running further down the road, order overall. Yeah, it's a funny one, Dash. 
Yeah. Um, as a seven, Alistair McRae's rally came to an end uh, when its engine decided to run on three and dumped all its oil out the front. Um, there's some fairly resigned onboard footage uh, with, with with him reporting this fact back to back to base. Um, no such problem for his brother. Colin was seven seconds faster than anyone else. Still clearly the fastest man out there through SS7. Um, and another case of what might have been, I suppose. Focus looks really good here, doesn't it, oh, in the yeah. footage? I mean, it's just, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, he's on to be, it would have been, uh, I mean, if things hadn't gone as got, gone as they did, I would have probably put him finishing second behind Gronholm if had, had fate not intervened. Well, I say fate, he went off. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that's part of the McRae package, isn't it? SS9, SS10. Uh, Science's pace was hampered here uh, in one of those weird, bizarre reasons that only rally delivers, and, and we all love it despite this. Um, there was a spare part rolling around the, the footwell of his car, uh, which occasionally worked itself under the pedals and finally prompted a stall uh, at a, a well-populated, very slow hairpin in front of everyone because these things only ever really happen in front of a big crowd, even in rallying. Um, he, he, he can't part from a confident, ideal from a confidence point of view, uh, and a key factor in him being just 10th quickest through SS9, uh, and thus he dropped to fourth overall a result. That prompted Robin Perra to inherit the lead, while Mackin and Radstrom were promoted to second and third, respectively. Although next time out in SS10, Mackin hit a snowbank, snowbank and once again seeded second to Radstrom, albeit by a scant 2.5 seconds. Um, that same stage saw Ericsson in the Hyundai, uh, quite an elderly car in phase one, Evo one spec by this point, uh, into an impressive sixth overall back into the points. But there was still no change at the top of the timesheet with McRae and Burns heading the timesheets, uh, both still well outside the points, but ballistic. Um, service, Robin Perra had a big issue here with uh, gearbox, uh, gear selection issues um, and sort of mandated that Peugeot uh, conduct a gearbox swap, which they managed within 20 minutes allocated, cut it very fine. Um, he then went and rewarded them, uh, the mechanics, by being second fastest through SS3 to consolidate his lead. Uh, he did the same on SS12, and he ended the day with a second, sec seven second advantage over Mackinac in his second, 12 seconds ahead of Randstrom in third. Um, deeply impressive stuff. And, and I mean, we'll get to this again, but it's still hard to believe that a man of this caliber and quality and sheer talent only ever won this one event. Sorry if no one else knew what was happening, but. Uh... Um... All things, you know, looking at that pace and stuff, okay, like, you know, McRae and Burns obviously flying and Granholm gone. Where where does the running order look at this point in the rally if Burns and McRae hadn't had their issues and Granholm was still in the race? Is it is it Granholm, McRae and or Burns in a reversible thing, then Robin Perra, Mackin and Radstrom? In terms of what do I think who'd who, who, who do I think who'd be leading at this point and what would the order look like? I still struggle to see past Gronholm and Sweden, to be honest. I think mm, yeah. unreliability out of the equation. I think you know, knowing what we do about his five Swedish victories overall come the time he called time with his career. Um second only to, to Blomquist. Um yeah. uh, and 
I don't know. I say this as a McRae fan, albeit a more realistic one these days, but I think that even if he hadn't gone into the snowbanks on the opening day, I dare say it would have happened. Yeah, and and you know it's hard to 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 decide in this kind of counterfactual situation with the pressure off, and they're not you know there being no chance realistically of a podium position. It must be so much easier to throw caution to the wind if you are a McRae or a Burns in this. Well, this is it. Yeah, know, and this is a boy. Pressure is off, as it were, you know. Mm. Um, so you yeah. got fancy Burns here, maybe you'd probably go Granholm. Burns, McRae would have, if he didn't stop it there, he'd be chasing Granholm, probably would have gone over the edge a little bit. Um, he would have won or, or, or not finished. That's that's the thing. Whereas Burns, as we both know, especially in 2001, missed a consistency. Way more calculated. But would have got a podium, I dare say. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. If not second, then perhaps third. Um, yeah. E comfortably, I reckon. Um, although that, that, that Impreza was troublesome at times yeah yeah although the very fact that that he was able to to do this in sweden is is just you know gives further credence to how subtly gifted this man was you know it's 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 changed a bit these days because and maybe it's because i only really associate with equally rally sozzled people who, who respect burns's talent but for a long time he was an overlooked and, and, and slightly not forgotten but overlooked world champion um, but when you see performances like this, could have won far more, I think. Or at least another championship had had fate not been so horrible. Um, and, and yeah, just a phenomenally gifted all-rounder uh, with, with the intelligence to drive within himself and bank the points, which couldn't always be said of his chief rival from north of the border. Um Final stage of that uh, of that leg, SS3. Uh, Macadon fastest, but cut it fine. He nearly went off in the process. Uh, perhaps a harbing of, of things to come and evidence. Perhaps at the end of the Evo's development curve had finally been met. SS2 ended with Robin Perra ahead of Macadon by 7.3 seconds. Radstrom, 5.1 seconds further back. Sites in four, 16.1 seconds further back. And Delacour, a distant fifth, 53.5 seconds back. Day three, leg three, we have Sagan, Ramon, uh, one and two uh, each, followed by Hagforst, so five stages all in. Uh, all to play for on the final leg, uh, with an overnight dusting of snow to spice things up further. An exciting prospect, though perhaps not for Robin Pera, who was clearly somewhat on edge at the prospect of being so tantalising close to his first win at this level, which I always liked. I like it when, when a... Well, any sportsmen, but especially rally drivers, because they occasionally seem to do it more than than most other sportsmen, let you in to their actual mental state. You know, maybe it happened more or happens less frequently these days because every sport at this level has coaches and, and mental health professionals coaching drivers and sportsmen how to not wear their heart on their sleeves. Mm, but as absolutely. we all know as rally fans, there's nothing nicer than knowing that that someone's a human and 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 rallying at this time was full of human characters at yes. all levels. And I like this about Rottenpera. You know, it's the reason that we like Gronholm for his hilarity and, and wearing his heart on his sleeve. And you know, Rottenpera is as rattled as I would be. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see emotion in these in these guys that you've elevated to a certain point and even looking back at it. Um yeah, as you say, humanizing them and 
when particularly you know high level elite sports people of any discipline can often come across so robotic and as you said these days perhaps helped by um you know uh well it, social media training and sports psychology and whatnot um but uh um, when we yeah. do get a more even today when we do get one then it's such a treat when there's maybe an unguarded moment at a stage end interview um rather than the usual lines I hadn't considered the social media thing, and you're almost certainly right. I suspect that the, the, this, of course, is an era before social media was a thing. The internet is still very much in its infancy, and so, you know, rally drivers could perhaps be less guarded um, because not everything that you say is going to be tweeted or, or or sent around the world, and 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 you're going to be forced to account for it. I mean, yes, giving an interview to a TV camera is is important, but it's not got quite as much potential for I don't know mockery or being to me to be missing uh, misinterpreted as as a social media output tweet or whatever. Yeah, but it's also like it, it won't come back to bite you for at least a week. You know, you won't arrive back into service to someone going, "Oh, this is happening on Twitter." Yeah. Uh, you know, you you can the rally will be long over by the time you're on the telly, and because you almost certainly know the crew who is the person who's thrusting a mic in front of your face uh, because you've done this a few times, you could probably, if you didn't like something, give it some context and say, could you perhaps do this and that? And maybe they'd be more inclined to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, the coverage of that opening more and morning shows were often pair and Mackin and having a hug um, and then being very convivial, which is lovely. Um, Robin Pear even says to Mackin, even if I beat you, I'll still like you, which is just lovely. Um, that wouldn't happen in F1. Uh, Robin Perra uh, first chose to tackle the first stages with a full quartet of full Michelin ice compound tyres, uh, the longest spikes available. Very good choice. Second fastest through uh, SS13, Sagan 1, uh, followed up by fourth fastest through Raman 1. So just managing, and of course he was uh, battling a lot of snow. Um, but it's it's just evidence of, of how well judged it was. I mean, uh, uh, Desborough calls it completely correctly on the on the footage itself saying that he was he slid wide but not too wide he was quick but not too quick um and again as we all know from any interview with the wrc driver they all say that the mistakes creep in when you're trying to drive at 94 or 95 percent let's say you know flat out is what it is and and driving very slowly is what it is but that sort of weird nether zone where you're trying to preserve a lead but not build it that's when then i dare say overthinking and mistakes creep in um Macadon opted for a less aggressive studded snow tire uh, and suffered a result uh, suffered as a result with 17.2 seconds off of and pair come the end of ss14 uh which left radstrom uh painfully aware of the team orders at play uh, although also in a tough situation because his third place was under increasing pressure from a hard-charging Carlos Sainz, less than six seconds behind him in fourth at the end of SS14. Uh, for his part, Sainz tussled with Radstrom for third of the course of that leg, the large margin between the two ebbing and flowing as it went. Um, someone not too bothered about this was Burns, who was quickest overall on SS13 and SS14. Uh, he then repeated the trip on 15, 16 and 17. So, you know, ballistic stuff. 
15 and 16, Rovan, Perra and Radstrom moved ahead of their respective foes, albeit gradually. Macklin and Sainz were 18.6 and 4.2 seconds clear, respectively, come the end of SS16, the penultimate stage. SS15 saw Al Oriol's transmission finally launch itself, uh, and he retired from sixth place. Probably not as disappointed as he might otherwise have been, given how shite he felt. Um, uh, and another man who had uh, equal issues with his transmission was McRae, who's uh, who had gear selection issues from 15 right through to the end of the back rally. Uh, and it's yet another instance of McRae. Do you see him get, uh, I think, come 16 uh, and 17, he is lodged in sixth gear for large sections and is doing some very classic McRae banging his fist against the gear lever and the dashboard. Um, and as we all said, there's nothing like a rally driver wearing his heart on his sleeve. Um, SS16 saw Delacour's seemingly secure fifth position come at a threat due to his own transmission issues. Suspect something on the water on that final leg as everyone's gearbox started to fuck up. <laughs> uh, that permitted Tony Gardemeister and his privateer tour of six WRC to catch, then overhaul him for fifth, which would in the fullness of time become fourth. But we'll get to that in a sec. Final service, Robin Perra, again, pretty rattled, but understandably. Macklin, by this point, looked fairly defeated, um, perhaps acknowledgement of the limitations of his car versus the Peugeot. But again, it's implacable finish uh, face, isn't it? You know, very hard to get a reading. Um, I always find Macklin especially hard in that respect. Very much so. I was just going to say, yeah, um, always very hard to judge the kind of form of him, isn't it? In this one, he looked like he'd just been... I mean, given the worst news in the world, although that's tempered by the fact that he only looked slightly less happy than that footage of when he gets the phone call saying that science has retired in Margam in 1998. So, you know, the 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 the, the spectrum of Mackinnon emotions is very, very <laughs> narrow, I think. You know? Yes. <laughs> Mildly perturbed, ecstatic is just a shrug. <laughs> it's only a slightly raised eyebrow. <laughs> um, Robin Perra entered SS17 with an 18.6 second lead Mackinnon 7 seconds ahead of Radstrom and Sainz just 4.2 seconds ahead of him um, you might not say you probably wouldn't say it was all still to play for but given it was Sweden and given the people involved you could probably still have said that there was a chance from a Mackinnon point of view albeit a slightly out one uh, a slightly distant one uh, this was being Hagfors Robin Perra drove steadily, consummate drive to end the stage, fifth fastest overall on the full ice tyre. Job done, at least as far as he was concerned. And then Mackinnon. Um, classic Mack attack, uh, spellbindingly quick for the first third of the stage, and then came unstuck with a very quick uh, right-hander. Um, lost the back end, oversteer, oversteer, dodging the banks, over the snowbank and into the trees. One of those hits that didn't doesn't look as heavy as it was from on board, probably because of the snow damping things and noises. When you look at the outside of the car, well toast. You know, there's it's it's ripped the uh, the front left hand uh, corner off the Evo, um, yeah, and and just disappointment out there. And then there's some initial uh, confusion with science following uh, because he thinks it's Radstrom, uh, not Mackinnon. Um, but bully for those guys because they get to inherit his place. 
Good old Kenneth, Kenneth Erickson was second fastest overall in SS17, secure eighth overall, one place ahead of McRae, who struggled with the, the aforementioned rapidly failing transmission. Q lots of McRae. Um, his teammate's misfortune allowed Radstrom to inherit second, uh, Science third, um, and Macklin's misfortune also promoted Gardemeister, Delacour, and Solberg further up the order. Um, and yeah, thus we have. Callie, uh, Ralph and Pera, Jesus Christ, Harry and Callie. Um, <laughs> Harry Ralph Pera uh, with his uh, his first ever WRC win. Um, and as I said, I, I find it so, I found it hard to comprehend at the time that this man uh, didn't have a full-time drive. And with the fullness of time, I find it even more hard to get my head around the fact that he didn't win more. Um, just, just the vagaries of the sport, I dare say. Hmm. And... You can only you can bet Persia where where Corrado Provera was was pulling his cigar and hair out and the fact that he wasn't nominated for points at the time, um, but that doesn't take away from a stunning performance for for Harry um, and one that I remember watching TV wise at the time and absolutely loving. But he does he does almost every event for the rest of the year and then, yeah, I presume he they nominated him after that. Um, <laughs> although no, well they're not all. No, they're not all works outings. Even he's in a two hundred six. Yeah, uh, there's a private ear entry on San Remo and Tour de Course. Um, it's not like any other when budget is going to be the issue either mm. for a team like Peugeot. <laughs> yeah, although um, his engine blew up in the next event and then he had two suspension failures after that. But yeah, I mean, it seems silly that they brought him for that event and didn't nominate him for manufacturer's points. Lots of cigars choked on. Perhaps. Yes. God, I love Corrado Provera. Um, and of course, the best thing about all this is the fact that if you do the maths, uh, nine months after this event, uh, a, a certain Cali Robin Pera was was born. Um, so far be it from me to speculate on the the nocturnal activities of the Robin Peras, but uh, it sounds to me like uh, Harry celebrated in the best way possible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's a better man than me because if I'd won my first World Rally Championship event, I wouldn't be performing that night. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Be in the bar, Brewers Group with a strut. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to play pool with a rope. <laughs> Keeping it classy, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, great event. Uh, uh, fully deserving winner. A nice podium. Uh, you know, obviously, they're kind of the two draftees almost and the, and the top two steps, which is always nice to see. Um you Especially know, the how Evo. much it meant to Turner as well. Yeah, you, you know? can hear her at the end. And great, great name, obviously, as well, that we didn't touch on the Tina Turner thing. You could see the emotion in her and the, the, how ecstatic she was. Uh, and they seem to have a great rally, like a very enjoyable rally. Um, it's not really, really good. I think, you know, Mackinnon falling victim to, he just had nothing left. That Evo had nothing left to give. He pushed it too hard and that was it. There was no way he was going to catch him. It was going faster meant exactly what happened that he went off. It's an event that has everything, really. I think, you know, it's got that last stage, massive scalping of, of a, a world champion. It's got, you know, uh, established or, or guys you'd have thought have been in contention, out of contention very early on and yet still blitzing stages. Um, new talent rising to the fore. Um, and yeah, just just a fantastic event, really. 
the great thing of Sweden as well is like there's so many of these offs, but because of the nature of the landscape and the roads, that you can have a fairly high speed accident or off, but it's no bad times to okay, you could lose bags of time bogged down as they did, or light dustings of damage and ripping off panels here and there. But the cars will continue for the most part, depending you know on, on what happens. But you know, given the speed of the accidents happen and when how far they can leave the road, if it was any other event, well, the car is just. Yeah. It's not getting back on the road at all, and if it does, it's not driving. Um, so it's great because you then you get these stories like Burns and McRae swapping fastest times despite being way down. Because if it was a different event, they'd just be out of the rally. You also get appealingly scabby looking rally cars as well. Back then, mm. at least when they when it was was harder to kill these things. I love a bumperless um, focus and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and, and even when they've got bumpers back on, you see it in the the, the lead up to the the the, the intro to the final de- leg. There's not a, a a panel join on any of those lead three that hasn't got a bit of scuff or a bit of white showing. You know, and and if you're a pervert like me who likes slightly mottled rally cars, it's uh, manna from heaven. Fantastic. No, they do, they do look good. I like seeing them wearing their scars with pride rather than pristinely replaced panels and whatnot. Exactly. You know, one that's it's missing a few stickers here and there that they've they, they've had a spare bumper, but they didn't know whose car it was going on. So, you know, the, if you've got the likes of one for Delacour who is running a different livery and his bumper ends up on McRae's car, things like that. Um, I can't be the only one who, when when playing early McRae rally games, even if I had time left at service to conduct the full body shell swap, wouldn't just because you want to keep the damage and and get a mechanically superb car that looks physically wrecked at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you're not alone there. Right, that's a great great choice, Jamie. Um, one I enjoyed looking at the footage of as well and you know it's it's uh yeah it's one of those eras obviously we're both big proponents of and you know it's it's you know how many manufacturers are there and it's stacked with talent stacked with yeah. cool world rally cars and it's still true still managed to throw up a somewhat left field winner yeah absolutely um and i think for me personally it's made all the better as i say for for the fact that i went to the final event of that season so i was very much in, invested in in in, in this, knowing that I would see these same guys nine months later, wherever it was. So let's move on to my pick then. I've chosen the 53rd running of the event, uh, the second round of the 2004 World Rally Championship. Now, as we said at the start, Sweden's always great to watch, incredibly quick, um, consistently one of the fastest events in the calendar, and seems like it may well be again this year. Um, Cars on the lovely skinny studded tires flying between the snowbanks at massive angles. Uh, and 04, I think, was the, the last year of the really super skinny tires, wasn't it? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because at the time, I remember not really liking them, thinking they looked absolute pants. And yet now, it's like, yes, I love it. I love it, the fact that they're like, you know, nomenclature of, of, uh, of, of very specific events and a very specific surface. Need it's them the- back. It's the jumps, isn't it? It's when they're over the jumps and it, it just looks so bizarre. But from 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 oh one, there's that photo we've seen of Thomas Radstrom all mm. crossed up with with yeah, like forty five degrees mid air, skinny tires. Yeah, superb, love it. Two thousand and four had an incredible roster of of drivers and cars, much like Jamie's pick from a time when the World Rally Championship was really really strong, um, and if anything, maybe a year before it hit a bit of a decline, perhaps. Um, Threw up plenty of drama, both on and off the stages. 
before seeing an, at the time at least, unusual victor, all of which we will come to. Ice and gravel no crews were no longer allowed for this event, uh, providing a further challenge, much to the ire of, of people competing. And all of that is to come. But first, the contenders. 555 Subaru World Rally Team, 2003 champion Peter Salberg returning his blue and gold liveried Subaru, hoping to retain his title. For a man from across the border in Norway, oddly enough, he was never a fan of the snow uh, and had been taking tuition from former teammate Tommy Mackinnon. Uh, hoping to to get a further get to grips a bit easier with with this sort of surface. After finishing seven to Monte Carlo the previous month, he'd be hoping for a solid points haul to try and defend his title. Partnering him would be Finland's Mikko Hervonen, still very much a rookie in WRC at this point, who would replace Richard Burns after his his tragic brain tumor diagnosis. With an all Scandinavian lineup, Prodrive will be hoping for a strong finish here, given the lack of success in this event from anyone from outside that region. They will be piloting the S9 WRC Impreza, later chosen by Salberger as his favourite car from his career. Not much changed from when he won the championship the previous year. Then we come to Citroen Total World Rally Team, the reigning manufacturer's champions. Uh, they retained their winning lineup of 2003 with future GOAT Sebastian Loeb, now well settled at the team and eager to claim his first driver's title. Loeb arrived in Sweden with a nice haul of points start the season after taking victory in Monte Carlo by over a minute. The other Zara would have El Matador himself, two-time champ Carlos Sainz, once again cropping up, who's cropped up in every event we've done so far on this um, and showing no signs of slowing down just yet. He was really, really still. He managed to, you know, out of all the, the guys who kind of transitioned from the Group A era, he really seemed to, to cut it really, really well. You know, I mean, he's He's rallying, you know, at the top level since the late 80s at this point, And, you know, he's still still well able to, to fight at the top. A man whose formative years took in uh, Renault 5 Group B maxis and ended with, you know, Azara WRC that you had to drive very smoothly to get the most out of. I mean, Mr. Adaptable, you know. They could be sure, really, they the strongest drive repairing in the championship at their disposal. I don't think you could argue that. Really, with the benefit of hindsight, I dare say at the time, you know, we all knew Loeb was something special, but I don't think we realized how special. I think if you'd have asked someone at the time, maybe they'd have been a descent. But no, you're completely right with the benefit of hindsight. Steins had never won in Sweden, but he had stood on the podium no less than six times in the last decade. Uh, and he was probably confident he could repeat this feat or, or, you know, definitely hoping he could better it. Citroen Zara WRC was now entering its fourth year of competition, which seems wild. I think we've mentioned this off air before. Um, and it's, it's sort of an old car at this point, um, though no evidence of it, really. Yeah, almost monotonously brilliant, let's face it. <laughs> I will continue to be so for, for a couple of years. Even in Kronos, guys, it was it was the, the best thing to have, isn't it? Yeah. It really must be the best transformation of a really humdrum shopping car into a true legend of rallying as well. Um, you wouldn't look twice at a Zara on the street, uh, but the WRC remains absolutely magnificent looking. Speak for yourself. Yeah, we know your, your feelings on old chunky Citroens anyway, don't we? <laughs> Marlboro Peugeot total. Uh, Peugeot had been having a successful few years with two drivers' titles and three manufacturers' championships since the 2000 season, so probably still the team to beat. 
uh, to 206 was no more, but had retired one of the greats of the time. A car that had been selected by the marketing department against Michelle Nandan's wishes, as he openly admitted the older 306 would have made for a better base due to the packaging challenges of the smaller 206. It did turn out to be wickedly quick and absolutely, truly competitive. Unfortunately for the folks at Peugeot Sport, this meant that the marketing department once again chose their new base car in the 307 Coupe Cabriolet, having demanded that this and not the hatchback be used for competition, despite the tears and cries of woe from engineers at Peugeot Sport. It would carry over reportedly just the brakes and steering wheel from the old car. And interestingly, contrary to the press specs issued ahead of the World Championship, it would be equipped with a speed-sensitive viscous coupling centre diff and not an electro-hydraulic active unit, though it would gain that later in the season. Two gearbox options were developed for the car, rather infamously including the four-speed unit. However, it was not all doom and gloom. And on a fast event like Sweden, the 307's aerodynamically efficient shape could prove to be effective, especially in the hands of Granholm, who had won the last two events in Sweden. This time partnered by Freddie Likes, uh, who would be doing just three rounds with Peugeot this season after his once promising career had taken a somewhat turn for the worse since his time with Hyundai Mitsubishi. But on the upside, he only had to do three events with the Peugeot. <laughs> with the yeah, 307. There, there is that. But I, I, you know, I, I know I said this to you recently, but I... Maybe we're being too unkind to the 307, despite its obvious failings in some regards. Uh, or maybe it was just Granova so damn good. Um, speaking of Mitsubishi, it had been a dull, difficult period since the turn of the century. And, you know, quite the opposite of how Peugeot's time had been going. Uh, and after they made the switch to the World Rally Car regs, things had not been going their way. After withdrawing from the championship at the end of 2 Mitsubishi purchased Andrew Cowan's ACMS Limited and Rally, Rally Art Europe was no more. With the team now coming under the banner of Mitsubishi Motorsports, the brand was determined to reclaim their spot at the top. The team was overhauled from the top down and Cowan replaced his team principal, ending a long legacy, I guess, uh, from his time there. Design work on the Lancer WRC 04 started in the beginning of 03 and resulted in a very distinctive aerodynamically advanced design with a standout rear wing placed in the centre of the bootlet. It's always the talking point of this car. So, Best like, rear wing going. <laughs> like the Peugeot, this is basically an all-new car and looked like it could show promise, though they intended the 04 season to be mainly for development and would not contest every round as they expected to hopefully come back for a full title challenge in 2005. The driver's lineup consisted of Gilles Panizzi as the number one driver for the season, paired in this event by Christian Salberg, no relation to Petter. Uh, the Lancer's first event in Monte hadn't been an amazing start for a new car, sixth place with Panizzi, not so bad, uh, and Gigi Galli retiring. Though Panizzi had made favourable comments about the car so far, expectations for this event probably weren't that high. Panizzi had only competed in Sweden once before, which might be hard to believe, or maybe somewhat easy to believe, given Panizzi's provenance on other rounds. Um, and then also Salberg had a relative lack of top-flight WRC experience. This was his first works drive. Ford, uh, the team running probably my favourite car in the event, certainly favorite, uh, my favourite-looking car. Uh, always find the 3 to 5 uh, an interesting odd period from Malcolm Wilson's team after McRae and Sines left the team but before the kind of Granholm Hervin and pairing and the Latvala it was yeah it was an odd time after after uh, 03 
They were, however, running a stunning-looking car in the Focus WRC03, which had some innovative features and had proved to be a solid competitor since its introduction some way through the previous year. Estonia's Marco Martin was looking like a world champion in waiting since arriving on the scene and was one of the drivers touted to be fighting for the championship this season. Ford's other point-scoring driver for this event was Finland's Jan Tuohino, while up-and-comer Francois Duval would drive another Focus but was not eligible to score points in the Manufacturers' Championship for this round, as none of the cars could run a third, or none of the teams rather, could run a third point scoring car. A few non works entries were to mention here Henning Salberg and Daniel Carlson in a pair of 206 WRCs. And obviously, this was the PWRC years as well. So, fairly good roster um, in Group N machinery there Tashi Arai, Alistair McRae, Manfred Stoll, and Gigi Galli out uh, in the PWRC field. What's, um, what's interesting from your team synopsis there is how there's still so much influence from big tobacco you know marlborough Peugeot total and 555 super world rally teams you know that they're still finding the loopholes yeah yeah okay we can't pass deliveries to quite the same degree but we're going to have fags mentioned in the very name of the team yeah yeah those were the official team names so wild yeah because like five 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 itself had disappeared off of the Subaru cars long ago. It comes back. It was back in oh two two two. Believe yeah. you got five five five, didn't you briefly? But yeah, 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 yeah. probably on certain rounds, perhaps somewhere in yeah. the med, but no one gave a toss at that point. Yeah. So Rally HQ and the service park for this event will be in the town of Hagfors in the county of Vermland, just over three hundred kilometers northwest of Stockholm. There will be 19 special stages with stage one, two, eight, and nine not being repeated, though part of two would also feature on stage 12. Uh, around 400 kilometers competitive stage mileage. On Thursday, Peter Salberg had a not so good start and in coming into contact with a local driver on the road section, uh, although no major damage to either car and thankfully no injuries. That, that's wild, that. When you look at the footage, like the, the local just completely seems to run out of talent and, and sort of oversteers on a straight bit of snowy road, but still oversteers on a straight bit of road into the passing Impreza. In like a really, you know, typically Swedish, like Volvo uh, 740 estate or something. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if, like, it was, it was, uh, he was on edge because of who it was. I wonder if he saw the Impreza was like, shh. You know, Look, if you see your works in Pretza in your mirror, you you probably just become overly conscious of it on your road position. Maybe I don't know. Um, or you're, and he couldn't have been trying to take his phone out to take a picture either because it's two thousand and four. So, yeah, <laughs> he's there. He's there winding the disposable. <laughs> <laughs> so on to the first leg then. The first leg would consist of five stages on the Friday, with stage one being the nineteen and a half kilometer test of Lidsborn. Monte Carlo winner Sebastian Lowe would be first on the road, but luckily for him, road sweeping duties weren't quite what one would expect as a thaw overnight had left a lack of fresh snow, had him driving on ice and frozen gravel instead. He put in a strong time of 9 minutes 26.4, but was pipped for the stage win by Granholm by 6 seconds, while Loeb's teammate Sainz also finished a second or so quicker than the Frenchman. The two other likely championship contenders, Marco Martin and Peter Salberg, weren't far behind with just eight seconds separating the top five on the opening stage. Stage two would be won by Carlos Sainz, but would still be behind Granholm in the overall standings heading back to service, with Marco Martin also putting in a great time, just 0.2 of a second slower than Sainz. 
defending world champ Salberg suffered a spin, didn't lose too much time though, and ended up with identical time to brother Henning on this stage. Meanwhile, in the Mitsubishis, things hadn't been going well. Christian Salberg on his works debut had already gone off on stage one and suffered a similar incident on stage two, losing nearly five minutes, while Panizzi was struggling with the car and both would head back to Pagfor Airport for service where they would get new gearboxes. You can with with Christian Solberg's like double header incident. I mean, that one is the second one is basically a replay of the first. And I say this is a man who has not even a fraction of the talent of Christian Solberg, but it must have been a brain fade. Like being being under the cosh from the first one bleeds into the the mindset of the second. You know, it's it's just a replay. Um, yeah, all the more frustrating you'd imagine for it. Definitely. It, I mean, yeah, anything like that, you know, you're you're chasing, you know, anyone who, who rallies know that the time is always lost, but you're you're still just so much conscious of the clock all the time. And it, it's easy to see how these things would creep in. You, know, you can't obviously we're not and we wouldn't pass judgment on such things. You can absolutely see how it would happen. Absolutely. Um, What's weird about this this event compared to yours that for the first two legs, there's basically a service every two stages. Um. Yeah, every two stages until the last day when there's three stages done twice. Uh, so they're back into service very, very often on this, which may have kept some people going a bit longer than they should have. It's still the powers that be, I think, trying to fully get a grip on homogenizing each round to fit it neatly into a sort of a formula for the for the championship. I think you know and. I dare say it's one of those things they've only recently, well, relatively recently, fully fully grasped. Mm. Stage three was the longest stage on the calendar, 52 kilometers in length. Rally leader Marcus Granholm will be beset by power steering issues and plummeted down the standings, much to his frustration, naturally. A stage what a end... stage to have that on, eh? What a stage to have that. <laughs> couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be worse. Yeah, couldn't be worse. Like I mean, those those long stages, and there's another one that'll come into play later on. Any any of the longest stage on the events, like they're the ones that often can decide things. You know, someone will make their play, or or someone will you know just slip down too much, you know, trying to defend a position, and they end up slipping back. Um, but yeah, any stage, you know, <laughs> you know, okay, we're only three or four kilometers from the end. Oh no, wait, twenty kilometers to go, and your steering issues creep in. <laughs> Um, and you can see him at the stage in cameras drenched in sweat and completely drained from 20 kilometers of wrestling that car around. Given it must be probably minus 20 or something as well, that's quite something. Yeah. Yeah, he's absolutely soaked. This meant the rally lead now went to Marco Martin, who was positively flying and sliding his focus about with a plum on the snowy roads. <clears throat> he would top the timesheets for stage three, nine seconds faster than Peter Salberg, who was now finding his feet and eager to claw back some places. Third fastest was Loeb, now promoted to second overall. Jan Tuohino was going well and earning his, his nominated drive in the Ford uh, in the second point scoring focus. He was in a decent fifth place, doing exactly what he was intended to do, really, with relative newcomer Mikko Hervidan not far behind. When all was said and done after this stage, a very frustrated and tired Granholm we found now in seventh with thoughts of victory, almost a memory and hoping those issues could be resolved at the next service, which fortunately for him was going to be before any further stage action. With service done, it was back to repeat the previous stage, and with steering problems gone, 
he was back on a charge, going second quickest to Martin, who would win the stage, though not bettering his previous time on it and was now extending his lead over Loeb to 24.3 seconds. Peter Salberg overhauled Carlos Sainz to slip into third place, and Mitsubishi's woes continued on stage four with Panizzi's engine calling it a day and rally over for Panizzi. While Christian Salberg got pulled into a snowbank and spun, though he managed to keep going. Looking at the top two, people watching on were starting to think this event was going to get its first non-Scandinavian winner. But who would it be? Day one finished with a short sprint at Hagfors, which resulted in no changes at the front. And as darkness fell, all thoughts had already shifted to what was to come. So yeah, kind of a, a chaos fraught day to an extent, but a lot of the chaos befell people who maybe were not going to be causing a whole pile of damage at the front end, I guess. Unlike mm. yours and you've like your McRae and your Burns has gone off quite early. Mm. Other than, of course, Granholm, you know, who would have been the clear favourite by, if not a country mm. mile, perhaps half of one. That's it. I mean, you know, certain drivers seem to be sponges for poor fortune. And, and maybe in this part of his career, Granholm is a, a strong candidate for that. Mm. Well, you know, and his his poor teammate not having much of a good time here either. But yeah, that'll that'll pop up as well. Though things had thawed coming into day one, a good snowfall overnight put a fresh blanket of snow down, making some drivers question their tyre choice became a bit more difficult today. Third place sitter Peter Salberg arrived at the first stage with a lack of anti-leg and stated to cameras he's, he was going to lose time. He lost even more time by missing a right-hander and getting bogged down in the snowdrift, requiring spectators to get him moving again and slip down to sixth overall. Meanwhile, Granholm was determined to keep regaining ground and put on a mighty push, claiming the stage win on stage six, 0.7 of a second quicker than Loeb and Martin, who posted identical times, moving him up to fourth, helped by Salberg's own issues. Fast Freddy Likes in the other 307, not having a great time and not living up to his nickname. He'd now stuck the car into a, th- into a tree and luckily didn't cause too much damage, but he was way down the order and frankly kind of had a hiding to nothing on this event. Uh, Granholm again would top the timesheets on seven, trailed by Signs. though Signs was still eight seconds ahead of the Finn overall. Marco Martin would pip Loeb to fourth fastest, stretching his lead over the Frenchman a little further as they headed back to service. Yet more gearbox issues for Christian Salberg meant the works Lancers were both being loaded onto trailers by, at the end of Saturday. So we tend to forget from Mitsubishi, but you know, for them still a development year, but I guess they wanted a bit more development time on the bloody stages. With six stages remaining for Saturday, a determined Granholm told reporters in service there was no speed left and that any faster he'd be off the road, that it was maximum. That's such a Granholmism, that, isn't it? You, you can you, yeah, you can hear it, see it, and and, and the hand expressions of everything. Yep. You know? The shrug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the slippery 307 was clocking the highest speeds of the rally with Desera just a tad behind. Marco Martin wasn't going to be worried by Granholm winning stage eight and moving up to third place. By this point in the rally, he was no real threat to his position as he was 51 seconds off. And all he had to focus on, see what I did there, was not losing time to the chasing Loeb, who would come off the stage 30 seconds behind the four crew. Mikko Horvath was starting to find some pace and posted his first top three time of the event, which was only his second outing in Sweden, uh, ahead of teammate Petter. In the other Citroen, Sainz and Mark Marty had an interaction with a snowbank and had to stop to clear packed snow from the front grill, which had had, uh, preventing sufficient cooling for the car. Once they got going again, they then had intercom issues, followed by Marty now having lost his place on the notes. All too easy, to be fair, whilst science had continued on the stage, 
Marty's rustling around trying to get the comms going again. And bear in mind, the view from the co-driver seat is going to be really challenging. You know, you have no landmarks, snowbanks and trees. That's basically it. You know, and he's got a couple of kilometers down the road. It's yeah, you can completely empathize with Marty there. Um it all looks the same. So this left signs the next one to tumble down the order, finishing nearly a minute slower than Granholm and slipping four positions down to seventh, helping Granholm into the podium positions, which you could really scarcely believe after losing so much time on day one and a testament to his pace, adaptability and determination as a driver. Right, you say, actually, yeah, because, I mean, you know, yes, yeah, some, some fancied guys further up the road uh, came a cropper, but not as many as in mine. You know, this is this is more down to Gronholm's tenacity, talent and throwing caution to the wind than it is benefiting from the misfortune of others. Yeah, because there wasn't huge dramatic time losses. There was like some of them had numerous events, but they weren't, you know, there wasn't, you that know, like, one aside that you just said. Yeah. You know, yeah. But... Um, you know, like Salberg had, had a couple of spins and a couple of incidents, but he hadn't really dropped that far back. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know Loeb is the GOAT, but Gronholm is my GOAT. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> or a t-shirt maybe <laughs> Sebastian Loeb won the sprint stage on the, the Friday night but now on uh, stage 9 we get his first proper stage win of the rally ahead of Martin and Granholm taking a 4.2 second chunk out of the Estonians lead the same stage would see a number of excursions into the snow with Duval and Hervin and both going off and needing to be pushed back onto the stage this caused a bit more drama for Sainz. Unfortunately, he came across the Subaru of Hervin and rejoining the road and his evasive action song going off the road too. So as a result, halfway through Saturday, the cars were returning to service with the standings as follows. The top five was Marco Martin, leading Loeb by 25.8 seconds over Granholm, who was 54 seconds off the lead. Jan Tuahino, 121 off the lead and Salberg uh, just five seconds behind uh, Tuahino. No, I said earlier, all thoughts of victory for Granholm must be gone, but not in this guy's head. You know, what do you reckon, Jamie? Ten stages to go, he must be thinking, you know, plenty of him having issues. Yeah, exactly. And and in an environment that he'd have to back himself on, you know, however quietly, he probably wouldn't admit it because he's a, you know, a, keeps his cards to his chest. But yeah, you'd be, you'd be crazy not to back yourself in this situation. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and back in service, the rally leader said to TV crews that he wants to stay on the safe side. Apparently, poor Marco didn't stay on it for long as he went out to tackle a repeat of the stages that caught so many of his counterparts out. Disaster struck. There must have been you know, something in the water on these ones. They were all sliding around far more and just maybe the banks weren't putting them back onto line just the way they wanted. Stahlberg straight over the limit on stage 10 and got bounced from one snowbank to another, picking up a little bit of damage, but was able to continue. Then had another moment on stage 11, but didn't lose so much time. Not but, long uh, after. Go on. Sorry, I was going to say, had it? do you know whether it had um, thawed slightly? Because obviously that impacts the, um, the, 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 the structural rigidity of the snowbanks themselves, even though, even though they look, the, they look as, as secure as ever. You know, if, if it starts to thaw, as we all know, they, they collapse and draw you in a lot more readily, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, it's later in the day, maybe the middays or kind of the afternoon saw it helped a little, but I don't think there was a dramatic change in temperature. 
Uh, and not long after, on the same part of stage 11, Martin had an almost identical incident, except with a much heavier impact. And unlike Solberg, wasn't just able to carry on needing a push from spectators, but soon realised that the left rear, left rear wheel was at a less than ideal angle. And watching Ian Cairn, you can hear the disappointment in his voice. He hit a rock hidden in the snow, was swiftly caught by cars on the stage before limping back to service. Five and a half minutes off the lead and almost definitely out of the fight for the win. Parting for the last loop of the day, second place Marcus Granholm was just 26.4 seconds off the lead and amazingly within reach of a third Sweden win on the bounce. If you could just see off a young Frenchman and another red liveried French machine. Now put yourself in Granholm's mindset here. As you said a minute ago, Jamie, you have to back himself. He knows Loeb is quick, but he's inexperienced in these conditions. His previous best result here was seventh last year. And also Loeb had had a few victories to his name by now. All of them were on tarmac, although you consider Monty a hybrid event, I guess. Uh, meanwhile, Granholm, seasoned double world champion, years of experience under his belt, and won three times, um, including the last two outings of this event. The 307 was achieving higher top speeds in the Zara, and though Loeb had been putting in a solid performance all weekend uh, to now be in a position to lead, he'd only won one stage, whereas the Finn had stage wins aplenty. And with no non-Scandinavian driver ever stood in the top step here, has to be still within a fair shout for Granum. Stage 12 is just under 40 kilometres in length, and such a test is often somewhere where rallies can be won and lost. Uh, now, he's at this long enough not to be overconfident, but you have to imagine the Peugeot Sport teamer, if not tasting the winner's champagne here, maybe smelling it. I, yeah, I think this is one of these events that it's very hard to separate from from hindsight. Because we all know what happened the next decade in a bit, you know, and that the history books were shredded and, and Loeb did what he did. But, you know, at this point, okay, you couldn't, it wouldn't be fair to call Loeb a, a tarmac specialist anymore. He was clearly more than that. But I think there was still a fair bit of margin for him, for, for most people, between a fair bit of fresh air between him and the likes of Grant Hall, you know. Um, a, a perhaps a world rally champion if these cards fell his way, but but not an all rounder everywhere on all surfaces um, and in all situations. But as history attests, um, we were all very wrong. Yeah, and this is the reason I've chosen this event because it was at this moment Sebastian Loeb chose to show the world that they were wrong and he was more than just another Gallic Taramic master. At the end of stage 12, Loeb was now 40 seconds clear of the chasing Finn. Earlier in the day, Granholm commented that any faster and he'd be off the road. Well, it looks like he strayed too far in his quest to catch the Citroen and spun at over 100 kilometres an hour, ripping the front bumper off, followed by a nervous giggle picked up on the in-car footage. Now, you... that, that, yeah, that exactly there. You can pass it off as a giggle, but that's a seminal moment. That's, that's you know... A... Big moment in the history of the WRC, not even just this event, not even in the career of two of the just in the two men respectively. That is the moment when any thought of Sweden being a ring fence thing for for Scandinavians is gone. You know, it, there's a new game in town, and this man is something else. Yeah, that was it. You could it that is that laugh. It, it's it's the it's the change. No, if not the changing of the guard. Um, it's something anyway. It is you can you can isolate you can guards. isolate that. Yeah. You yeah. can you can isolate that moment and it's it's the laugh of a man who knew that victory was out of reach and he was the guy who, you know, 
every time he goes to the pub now, he's the guy who didn't defend that all Scandinavian results on Sweden. The sauna, surely. The banner. Yeah. Sauna. Oh. <laughs> uh, maybe. Anyway. Just behind, Jan Tuahino was overhauled by Salberg in the Subaru to slip in third. Adding to Peugeot Sports frustration, Freddie Likes retired on the same stage, putting it dreadful and into a dreadful weekend for the Belgian. The second leg ended with a repeat of the Hagforest sprint stage, with nothing to cause much impact on proceedings. Sunday dawned on the 14 kilometer Sagan stage, the first of six stages, two loops of three. Loeb knew he couldn't afford to take his eye off the ball and let Granholm rein him in, given how many positions had changed hands due to what can seem like such innocuous interactions with snowbanks. However, when asked in the morning, Granholm stated the gap was too big, though I'm sure at the back of his mind he knew things could potentially change and he just had to stay within touching distance. Loeb would have to be smart here, not to, not to take too many risks. He could afford for his lead to be eroded a little, but just had to keep enough of a buffer there. And as you said earlier, it's... If you ask, and I've, and I've seen plenty of interviews we all have over the years, that driving on the limit, driving just off it, is often harder. You know, so it's it's a tricky one to balance. Um, Signs would claim the first stage win of the day here ahead of Jan Tuahino, trying to protect his fourth place position, would slip just behind Signs. Signs' teammate would finish sixth on the stage, but well clear of Granholm, who would spin and lose 30 seconds. Loeb took no risks, having entered the stage behind the Peugeot, was likely informed of the incident and knew what he had to do. Stage 15 saw a new stage winner in Tuohino, who now overhauled signs once again, though a determined signs would get the gap down to just 0.2 of a second. Loeb continued the day driving a measured and mature rally, while Granholm did what he did, did what he could to close the gap to no avail. And at the close of business, Rally Sweden had its first winner from outside of Scandinavia, and I think a sign of what was to come for Mr. Loeb, who put his stamp now on all surfaces, and the rest, really, is history. It's hard not to pick Loeb as a deserved driver of the event here, I know, but despite the errors and issues, the fact that Granholm only ended up 46 seconds off first place is absolutely incredible, all the same. I mean, okay, granted, he did make those mistakes in the first place, I guess, but claw that back in the end is, yeah, pretty damn good as well. It is. But I still can't see past Loeb for 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 the man of the match for this, as it were. You know, no. it's, it's <clears throat> I think <clears throat> on the Sunday particularly with Gronholm, despite what I'm saying, it's uh, it, it's too long of a gap, too large of a gap to overcome. I, I think at the back of his mind, as you say, he would have been thinking there's there's still a chance. And I think anyone else, uh, an Oriole maybe, he probably could have forced into flopping and making a mistake. You know, it's only Loeb's brilliance and, and freakish talent that means that a man who has no business being as consummate a performer on, on in, in Sweden, you know, is as, you know, meticulously metronomic brilliant as he was. It's... Well, yeah, because he's, you know, he's still, he's relatively young. He's He hasn't been a world champion yet. He hasn't, you know, piles of wins to his name. So, you know, anyone else sitting at the front there, that would impact them more, but I think that's I think it's the Sunday really where you're really so like this is the evidence of the lobe that was coming. You know, he did what he needed to do at the end of Saturday and he protected his position brilliantly and none of it got to him, none of it bothered him. It was mature, measured, and yeah, just pure lobe, <laughs> really. I mean, 
Yeah, exactly. I, I, before this, at the time, I, I harboured notions that, that, that Loeb was on a par with the likes of Solberg and maybe a rung or half a rung slightly beneath the likes of Gronholm. And by the end of probably this event, certainly this season, any notions of that had been well and truly dispelled for me and I dare say most other people. You know, it, it's it's a complete sea change. Um, and I dare say the championship has never been quite the same since, for better or worse. Um, and, and yeah, it's, you can't say fairer than that, really. No, like, I mean, by the end of 03, you knew there was a couple of championships in Loeb, you know, um, but maybe it was after this day on the end of Sweden 04 that you thought maybe there was a bit more than that. Completely. You know? Line of the sand. Yeah. And, you know, again, we said at the start, great quality of cars. Like every, as well, like on this event, every car was capable of winning here. Like every one of the teams had a car that was capable of winning the event. There's no doubt about it. We saw that in the stage times here. Um, very strong drivers all around, you know. Um, great drive by Tuohino, actually, for a fella that's. Got it for Marco Martin, you know, that's, a, you know, and again, it's hard for me as as, as a, an old romantic to, to sort of want to, to to see someone have more success given what happened, you know, a few months later. Yeah, it's um, watching the footage for this, um, it was, it, but my heart soared, but just seeing Michael Beef Park, you know, calling notes and, and, and you know, giving the odd bit of input, just... Mm. Such what a guy and such a tragic loss and 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 but but more importantly so good to see that pairing at pretty much near the, their best you know work in complete harmony a car that they both loved and 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 yeah just a fantastic pairing probably probably the man there that would have put the biggest fight to Lobe over the next few years had things not transpired the way they did perhaps we need to put a pin in that for a counterfactual episode. But I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's yeah, he's a world champion. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and yeah, that's what that brings us to the end of of Sweden, two thousand and four. Uh, another rewind episode for us. Uh, and as this goes out, uh, Cruz will be getting ready to put her helmets on for Sweden twenty twenty three. Any predictions for that, Jamie? Cali. <laughs> it's mean, just too want, easy. Yeah. Say, well, yeah. I mean, do you want a creative one or do you want what I actually think? You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's it. Yeah, I, I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I get it. I suppose we're not left with much choice here, really, and uh, not to discredit the rest, <laughs> the guys, but um, yeah, uh, should should be. Should be Cali, I guess. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I think, I think I'm hoping for a Craig Green podium. Um, I don't yeah. know. Uh, Elvin needs to. I don't know. Elvin had a strong Monty, but we'll see how he gets on here. I think he's starting to get to grips with the the Aris a bit more. Um, Lappy Lappy got a bit of seat time last weekend, although it didn't end well. But you know, he's been sitting in the car driving on snow. Trouble with Elfin is he needs to get the grips of it. But he needs to do more than get to grips with it. He needs to get to grips with it and then master it and ace it. And even then, with the best one in the world, he's still probably not going to be quite up there with with his full time teammate. You know, it's mm. um. But then there's no there's no harm in being 
a manufacturer's safe pair of hands and a points banker, at least from a career point of view. You know, um, Sordo's career might not have been as gilded, but you know, a, a manufacturer's dream in terms of point scoring and and reliability. How how many voodoo dolls of Sebastian Ogier does Elvin Evans have? Given that he would have been world champion if Ogier hadn't come to Toyota. <laughs> Image of uh, of uh, of opening the uh, the back room in uh, in in Gwyndaf Evans's um, uh, Ford dealership to see dreams of of voodoo dolls tumbling out with wisps of a Frenchman's hair glued to them. <laughs> oh dear. Oh. oh. Well, um, on that note, <laughs> could a point as any to leave it on. Uh, you've been listening to Rally DNA once again, Jamie. Thank you as ever. Um, hope you guys have all enjoyed this. Uh, we will be doing this again, but not for a few events. Um, Portugal, we'll do this again for. Now we've settled on. Only choice there. Yeah, yeah. We won't be doing it for Croatia. Yeah, it's a classic, <laughs> a true classic. Um, to. The San Remo of of uh, Central Europe, Central kind of East, Central <laughs> Southeast Europe, um, yeah. So, but we'll be back before that uh, in two weeks' time for another episode of Rally DNA. Thank you once again. Please switch on notifications on Spotify, Apple, etc. Auto downloads could be done too. Um, if you're using Apple, please leave us a review uh, and give us a few stars on whatever else you're using. Uh, and please check out our sponsor, Slip and Grip Automotive. And the links for all of those will be in the description below. Out in front, though, on his own from stage 11 of the Swedish rally, Sebastian Lowe. His rivals must be thinking this year's championship's going in one direction, and that's Lowe's. His first win on gravel is not far away, but making history here has shown that he's outclassed the best drivers that Europe has produced over the years. He's not only fast, but makes no mistakes. That's a winning combination. So it's a victory for France.